gave up everything so that we could become a part of your family. Lord, thank you for this time to focus on the cross of Christ. Lord, when we witness your amazing love, Lord, we cannot help but giving you our life and our all. Lord, you demand all, but Lord, you give us all. So, Lord, we give up everything this morning that we're holding on to. We give up our pride. We give up the things that are distracting us from you and from fellowship with our brothers and sisters around us. Lord, we praise you for being our God, and we thank you that we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good morning to each of you. We are singing just now about love so amazing, so divine. We're going to see it lived out this morning in the passage that we're reading, studying a bit today. As Jesus, the light of the world, moves into the world with healing and with blessing. So let's turn our attention to John chapter 9. I'm going to read the first part of the chapter. We'll make our way through the better parts of the chapter all the way through to the end. Uh, But uh, we'll just begin with the first 17 verses to set the stage this morning. John chapter 9. I'm reading from the English Standard Version today. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had been with him, who had seen him rather before as a beggar, were saying, "Is this not the man who used to sit and beg?" Some said, "It is he." Others said, "No, but he is like him." He kept saying, "I am the man." So they said to him, "Then how were your eyes opened?" He answered, "The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, "Go to Salome and wash." So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This chapter in John's Gospel has all of the elements of a great story. It has drama. It has surprise. It has humor. It even has some irony. And it also has an amazing conclusion. 
but because it teaches us about Jesus and his real life interactions with people during his ministry, it is so much more than simply a great story. The cast of characters includes Jesus, his disciples, a blind man who was a beggar, blind his whole life, as the scriptures tell us, the blind man's parents, as we'll see, and then the Pharisees. These Pharisees are religious leaders, as we know. They're more and more convinced that Jesus, by their analysis, is certainly a heretic and is also a rising threat to them, to their belief system, certainly to their power as well. So the stage is set for great drama in John chapter 9. Also key to what's happening in John 9 is what took place just before in John 8, as we saw uh, just last week. The previous chapter records a conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. I, I wonder if we can even begin to enter into the depth of that conflict. It was really something. It's hard. We're, we're so far removed from that setting, but, but let's give it a try. What had happened? Jesus had made a grand pronouncement following the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Part of that feast was uh, these four large torches that burned in the temple vicinity and illuminated the whole area. They were gigantic. These torches provided light They were a key feature of the celebration. But now that the feast was over and the flames were out, Jesus stood in front of the extinguished torches and said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The meaning couldn't have been clearer to his audience. Jesus is the light and his enemies are caught in spiritual darkness. That statement was a direct attack. Fighting words to be sure. But Jesus didn't even stop there. He told the religious leaders, you are of this world. I am not of this world. And he continued that even though they took great pride in being descendants of Abraham their ancestor, nothing in the way they lived their lives pointed to their spiritual heritage as children of Abraham. In actuality, Jesus said, fighting words again, you are serving the devil, not God. Jesus went on his next claim especially, put the leaders right over the edge. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And they recognized that saying as a claim of divinity. Here was Jesus in his 30s claiming that he had preexisted even Abraham and the I am statement, of course, of the very name of God. They understood, of course, that to be a statement of his divinity. Their response was to attempt to stone him. The charred torches of John chapter 8 are a dramatization of the difference between the kingdoms of light and darkness. In John 9, the story continues. We see the light of the world shining so brightly as he moves into a direct ministry of healing. It's such a beautiful thing. Jesus' intervention brings physical 
and spiritual light to eyes that have been blind from birth. Have you ever known somebody who's blind? I remember asking my parents about a family friend of ours who was a college professor. And he happened to be completely blind. I remember as a young child uh, asking, how does he do that? How does he prepare his lessons? How does he do the background study? How does he teach in a classroom and grade papers? It seems so limiting. And I'm sure in very many ways it really was. But I found out that there was more to this story. This professor, a friend of our family, had eyes to see that I didn't know about. His wife was his co-teacher in behind-the-scenes kind of ways. She helped this brilliant teacher to overcome the physical limitations of his infirmity by assisting him every single day. She was right there with him. The cruel reality of the blind man in John 9 is that he had no helper. He was restricted to begging as his livelihood. And again, I don't know that we can fully enter in to all that that would have meant for him. He had to make his way to the same spot day after day. He had to be completely dependent upon the gifts of those who passed by, who felt sorry for him and who actually had a misconception about the reason for his blindness, as we'll see. Everybody that passed by him thought that his blindness was a direct result of personal or family sin. Jesus' disciples certainly thought that. It was common in Jewish thinking of the day. Verses 1 and 2 of our text, as, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And as his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Essentially, they're asking the why question that we all struggle with at times. Why would God cause this? Why would God allow this? Why would God permit this this terrible situation? What would be the situation of, of this man's life and background? Why did this happen? Especially if God is in charge of all things. His sovereignty is in view here. Before we examine the miracle of healing itself that Jesus does, let's take a theological side road that our text leads us to on those opening verses that we just read. The disciples got to ask why. Wouldn't you love that privilege to be able to have the ear of Jesus to ask the reason for something? And we do get to listen in as Jesus replies. The disciples were curious about why this man was blind, and they saw two possible options, either his own personal sin or the sin of his parents was to blame. But Jesus corrects them very quickly. This was a logical fallacy in their thinking. Philosophers would call it the fallacy of the false dilemma. In their understanding, there could only be two reasons for uh, the blindness. Jesus helped them and helps us too to understand that it's actually bigger than a limited formula. God is not formulaic in the way he conducts his business and his plan through his goodness. Jesus helped them and us to understand it's actually so much bigger. Their equation didn't allow for God's mysterious purpose. In the blind man's situation, the actuality was neither his sin nor his parents' sin. In verse 3 we read, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Jesus corrects the direct uh, notion that all affliction and suffering is uh, punishment for sin. The book of Job also corrects that idea. Job's friends were way off the mark when they concluded that Job must be the worst sinner in the land because he is suffering so greatly. In their minds, there was a direct ratio that correlates the degree of suffering to the degree of a person's sin. The book of Job refutes that falsehood. Job's suffering, in his case anyway, had nothing to do with sin on his part. Certainly, yes, there are times when our own rebellion and bad choices even result in our suffering, to be sure. But it's not a formula, once again. It's not as simple as we might like to make it. Don't you love the fact that Jesus' answer to the disciples gives new dignity to this man who had been so wrongly judged and so easily degraded for his whole life and even to the point of being cast out? Jesus' answer helps us as well. We can rest and hope in the fact of God's divine and mysterious purpose in our lives too. Affliction and difficulty will come. Jesus said we should not be surprised when it does. We don't have to know all the details, but we're privileged to trust in the goodness and faithfulness of our Heavenly Father toward us even in the most challenging seasons we endure. So now we see what happens next. The stage is fully set for a great miracle, and it's ready to happen. This miracle points to some profound realities about Jesus, who is the light of the world. What happens when this light shines brightly in people's lives? The light of the world heals by compassion paired with power. It's so great for us to know that. Jesus is at work, and he's compassionate. He's also powerful enough to accomplish everything that needs to be. Jesus announces that the time is right and reminds the disciples that he and they have a lot of work to do. They have works of mercy ahead of them. We're called to works of mercy as well. He says in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, Yes, the time is right. And this is the work. And surprisingly, he makes mud out of his own saliva and the clay of the ground and then anoints the eyes of the blind man. Jesus then instructed the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. If you're connecting with what's happening here, I bet you have some questions. I know I do as I think about this passage. Maybe first I would ask, what was the blind man thinking during this occurrence? And then probably as well you're wondering, why did Jesus choose this method of healing, which seems so different from the way he healed others? Perhaps the man who had never had sight like some people who have lost one sense or another, have heightened other senses seemingly to compensate, maybe he was able to hear very clearly, even more clearly than most. He had to survive day to day in a challenging situation, a busy street-side setting outside the temple. He didn't have his vision, so he depended on his hearing, I'm sure. It's possible 
his hearing was especially tuned in to listen to his surroundings. If so, he very likely heard Jesus' announcement about being the light of the world. What does Jesus mean by that? Who is this man? And then the strange silence as Jesus knelt near him, spat on the ground, and made mud. Then all of a sudden, gentle hands put the clay on his eyes, and he heard the voice of Jesus telling him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. How would you feel if you'd been in this man's situation that day? Would you have felt a bit foolish that you were somehow making a scene not of your own choosing? People were looking, wondering. Certainly you were wondering too. But then as you made your way to the pool, as Jesus had directed, maybe, just maybe, you would allow your heart to dream just a little bit. Could it be true? Could this actually happen? He said something about light. He said to go and wash. The end of verse 7 says what feels like just a matter-of-fact statement. So he went and washed and came back seeing just like that. Think of it. This man who had never seen colors or clouds or trees or his family now could take it all in for the very first time. Imagine looking up from that water and seeing his face reflected in the pool. He made his way back to his neighborhood, and what did he do? Well, he let everybody know that he could now see, and then the questions started flying uh, toward him. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some recognized him. Others said, no, he only looks like the beggar. That was a different person. Scripture says that he kept saying, well, I am the man. Then the neighbors finally asked how this happened, and he told the story about how Jesus had helped him. So let's, let's examine a little bit of the rich background of what happened in this miracle. Let's talk about the mud. That's, that's surprising. Why did Jesus choose this method of healing? We don't know for sure. But we have some indications, perhaps. You have to look at other ways that he healed. And we can think of other incidents. Think of the centurion's servant, the man who came and, and knelt at Jesus' feet saying, can you help me by healing this servant of mine? I, I, I tell people to come and go, and they do it. You can do the same. And Jesus marveled at this man's faith. There was not even a comment by Jesus in the Luke 7 account that he would heal this person. But when they arrived back at the house, the servant was well. But then just after that passage in Luke 7 is Jesus' healing of the widow's son. Once again, we see the compassion of Jesus on full display. This widow, who had already lost a husband, a means, her means of primary means of support now lost her son as well, her only means of support. In that case, Jesus gave a verbal command, and the young man uh, was risen to life again. And John the Baptist questions, just right on the heels of that, John sent a message to Jesus. Should we look 
for another? Or are you the Messiah, the one, the one who's to come? And Jesus' first statement is the blind are seeing. So here we, we see lived out the fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecies about the identity of the Messiah to come. That there would be healing from, from blindness specifically. The blind can see as a result of the Messiah's entry into uh, this world. So why the mud? Once again, Scripture doesn't elaborate, but we see so clearly Jesus' compassion invading this man's life. Perhaps that compassion evidenced in physical touch. Perhaps, too, since this miracle took place on the Sabbath, Jesus was giving an object lesson that would be quite controversial to the Pharisees who were already and always highly critical. It seems to flow with what we talked about from John chapter 8. The Jews had formulated specific guidelines for the keeping of the Sabbath, and those included even a prohibition against the kneading of bread. Jesus' making of the mud with his hands fell into that category in their minds somehow. Even though Scripture didn't address it specifically, the Pharisees would use that to accuse Jesus of not keeping the Sabbath and of being a sinner incapable of performing a miracle. It was by their own definition of the Sabbath. Another reason, I believe, is to remind us, remind us that God normally uses means. There's food to nourish us, antibiotics to cure infection, a surgeon's skill to bring us relief. The list goes on. These and so many other provisions are all God's good gifts to us. And when you think about it, they all actually point us right back to God as the source of these blessings. He's the one who provides the sun and the rain for crops to grow for our harvest. He's the one who skills researchers to come up with medications that ease our afflictions. And he's the one who gives medical providers skills to, to help us. Once again, the list continues. It goes on and on. Here God uses the means of mud made of clay and saliva to provide light to the eyes of a man who had never seen anything before. Jesus, the light of the world, compassionately and powerfully intervened to bless this man with newfound sight. I mentioned the Pharisees a few moments ago. Their investigation into the miracle takes up much of the rest of the chapter. It's quite revealing of their hearts. So let's look at this. And I want to cast it in this. The light of the world exposes belief systems. What are we basing our understanding of the world on? How are we predisposed to understand the unfolding of life? Scripture helps us understand through a series of conversations that the blind man has a growing understanding of who Jesus is. Did you catch it in the first comment that he made in the neighborhood? In the first of those five conversations, the neighbors go, what happened? Notice how he refers to Jesus. He says, the man called Jesus. After all, he's yet to see Jesus' face. He knows him only through the interaction of the miracle. But then the progression is so fascinating. The Pharisees and the beggar, look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. 
And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I wash, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, Who do you say? What do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said, He's a prophet. So we begin with the statement, There's this man called Jesus. And as this man processes a little bit more what has happened to him, he now makes a statement before, a very bold statement, before the religious leaders of the day, he is a prophet. And then we see exchange of, uh, between the Pharisees and the parents. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. And it goes on to say that they were very concerned because anybody who, had, who would come to faith in Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogue. They were fearful. It puts the courage that we'll see in this, this uh, blind beggar, formerly blind beggar's life, even more uh, in the spotlight. The parents are fearful. Their son's courage is remarkable. And then we see the Pharisees and the beggar, round two. Verse 24 so, this, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The power of testimony is an amazing thing. Here's an uneducated beggar um, confronting the most educated leaders in his country. The leaders can't stand that that has happened uh, and that uh, they also don't like at all what's happening in this man's soul and they revile him and reiterate as we read on down in the passage the false belief about his former blindness. You were born in utter sin and would you teach us? So the healed beggar is gaining spiritual insight in addition to his physical sight. And the well-to-do Pharisees are becoming more locked into their spiritual blindness and spiritual poverty. I'll say this morning there's a very stark warning for us as we consider the beggar's story and what it might mean for our lives. Yes, it's an intriguing account, but is it true? The scripture says it is. But the Pharisees dismissed it because it ran completely contrary to their carefully constructed understanding of Scripture. They saw it as a threat to their power and standing. Isn't it tragic that they couldn't even celebrate and rejoice in the profound miracle of healing that had occurred? A son of Abraham had received his sight. And as the beggar himself pointed out to them, there was no record of anyone in history who had ever been given sight if he had been born born blind, if he had been blind from birth. Their bitterness blinded them to the truth of what was happening all around them. 
My question for you. Are you too sophisticated to consider the truth of the miracle that's recorded here? Oh, that was, that was a nice story for then. Do you have a category for this kind of thing? Perhaps you're blind to this encounter with Jesus, like the Pharisees. I have an extended family member who's a very bright young man. He just graduated from a large university uh, last year about this time. He grew up in the church. He was exposed to truth throughout his childhood and youth. But he recently let it be known that he was uh, he's going to go his own way intellectually and that there was no room in his belief system for Christian faith. It's tragic for us, his family. But I have to say, I don't believe God's finished with this young man. And I pray for him regularly. God, open his eyes to your truth. Break down, or break through rather, that, that pride barrier that seems to be so much holding him back. And maybe somebody here today is experiencing doubts like, like he is. Or maybe you know somebody who is. Pray that the light of the world will shine brightly to break through spiritual blindness. He can do it. He delights in hearing the prayers of his people. So is there room in your belief structure for the miraculous or the otherwise unexplained? I loved reading this week an NPR account of a lobster diver's really unusual experience. Did you read it? Did you hear it? The title of the article was, A Lobster Diver in Cape Cod Says a Humpback Whale Scooped Him Up and Spat Him Out. Whoa. And the first sentence of the article says this. A commercial lobster diver says he escaped relatively unscathed after nearly being swallowed by a humpback whale in a biblical-sounding encounter that whale experts describe as rare but plausible. Okay. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? A fish, not a whale, but nonetheless, I couldn't help but wonder how the diver might read Jonah chapter 1 in light of his experience. Might be a little different perspective. We've seen that the light of the world shows compassion and power. He exposes belief systems. Let's look at the beautiful climax of this account. In the fifth conversation of John 9, we'll see our final point. The light of the world calls to faith. The last conversation in this chapter is between Jesus and the beggar, verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus initiates the conversation with the former blind man. Jesus seeks and finds the beggar. I don't believe it's any accident that the next chapter in John's gospel 
is about Jesus as the shepherd who gathers his sheep. I love how the verses we read start, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he found him. Jesus looked for him. Then goes on to ask him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the beggar goes, who is he? And Jesus says, you have seen him. You've seen him. It is he who's speaking to you right now. And his response of great faith, Lord, I believe. You see, the beggar knew his need, and Jesus more than met it with physical and now spiritual healing. The beggar had a deepening understanding of who Jesus is and of the depth of his healing. He testified boldly about all that the light of the world had done for him. The Mitchell Road family is a curious thing that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel In that, Jesus refers to his followers as the light of the world. Wait, he's the light of the world. No, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city sitting on a hill cannot be hid. Who would put a lamp uh, under a, a basket? Rather, you put it on a stand to shine brightly. You have a story. You have a testimony. John 9, verse 5, just before the miracle of healing of the beggar, did you catch it? As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm leaving the world. You, my followers, will take up that mantle of light. Now you are. I I love it. The power of this man's testimony. Can you imagine his family hearing all of this? I I want what he has. I want to know Jesus and all that he is and all that he does. We have a story to tell as well. The contrast with the Pharisees was striking. They didn't know their deep need of God's grace in their lives and hearts. They thought they saw clearly and yet were blind to truth. Charles Spurgeon commented on this truth. It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back His hand. The way to see is to admit blindness. The blind are the ones who will see. Let's close our service this morning with a responsive prayer. It's printed in your bulletin and it will be on the screen as well. This prayer.